This is a podcast by The Straits Times. I think at its most basic understanding, discrimination is essentially just any behaviour where it results in one person or one group of people being treated differently from another person or another group of people because of any personal attribute of that person or that group. So that, that's what discrimination really is. When we talk about the workplace specifically, examples of workplace discrimination would be you know, a female employee being passed over for a promotion on the pretext that the company has not had enough time to assess you know, her performance that year, when in actual fact, she was away on maternity leave for a large part of that year. Or the other example that we often think about is a local employee being overlooked for participation in some kind of special overseas project because, you know, the explanation given is that we need someone who understands the cultural nuances of that particular country. When in actual fact, the project manager who is from that country just has a preference for their own people. You have just heard from Mr. Clarence Ting, a partner at law firm Siemens & Siemens. Clarence is a specialist in employment law and labour matters. He was giving some common examples of discrimination that we see or might have experienced at work. Singapore is expected to make workplace discrimination unlawful with the Workplace Fairness Bill by next year. Last month, a report of 20 recommendations was released to garner feedback from the public. So in this episode, I have invited Clarence, as well as Ms. Ashita Shetty, Head of the Human Resources Team for Southeast Asia at technology firm SAP. We're going to do some heavy lifting on what workplace discrimination means and how companies can prepare to heed the law when the bill passes. Ashita will give valuable tips that could be useful even if you are a small enterprise, especially if you are a small enterprise. Welcome to this episode of Work Talk, a podcast by The Straits Times. I'm Chris Wu. Every first Monday of the month, we bring you insights, perspectives and analysis to help you work smarter, think deeper and get ahead in a work life. So Clarence, why is this inherent at the workplace? We all have colleagues or co-workers reporting to us that we like more or less than we do others. We can't help it. Now, when does a colleague or boss's behaviour become discriminating? When can a worker call out a manager or even an organisation for prejudice behaviour? It's difficult to put a finger on whether this actually is discriminatory or not. By just talking about the behaviour itself, a lot of the times it's cloaked under a seemingly legitimate reason which makes it difficult to unpick what the actual real reason underpinning the behaviour or the decision actually is. Hand on heart, the company couldn't have made a decision on a female employee's performance because she took extended maternity leave that year and she wasn't around for six, seven months. And I suppose, yes, you could make that argument. But if it's the case that she's been an employee for the last five years, what difference would the last six, seven months in this year make based on her historical performance? then you, you start to sort of see where there are gaps in, in the reasons that are given. I have been a hiring manager and I have been in those situations where, to be honest, I wanted to hire people of certain profiles. For example, I had a preference for young people when it came to digital marketing. And if I had to do an intense campaign for the year, I would have inhibitions about putting a pregnant employee to head the project. So at what point do our decisions at work become discrimination? Ashita, as the regional head of HR in a multinational, How difficult is this? 
I can give my example. I took up bigger roles when I was just going on maternity leave. And I think that also depends on the company because SAP has provided that platform, that ecosystem of the guideline of the culture that irrespective of you being, you know, away for a particular period of time, it's your competence, it's your capability that comes into the force. The beauty of being in an MNC and the larger organization is also that we are privileged because we are at the forefront of this policy. We have something called a global anti-discrimination policy. And the purpose of this policy is exactly what you mentioned, is to ensure SAP's commitment to treating all employees with dignity, respect, a workplace free of bias and discrimination and harassment and so on. Most organizations like ours, we try to bring constant differences together. And that's where education, constant communication plays a key role. What you seem to be emphasizing is that instead of spending a lot of time diagnosing if a colleague's behavior is discriminating or not, what you've done is to build in levers to make sure they don't happen in the first place. I think at the foundation of everything, we need to have the base, right? We say we won't tolerate a particular behavior. We don't tolerate, you know, bias. We don't tolerate discrimination. We don't tolerate retaliation. Once we communicate that, that becomes a foundation and people are aware of it. And if people are not following this, then they also know the avenues where they need to raise it to. So at least that gives an opportunity of transparency, but at the same time, accountability and responsibility for an employee saying, okay, I feel differently. Can I raise it to someone? Clarence, what are your views? I think the reality is not all companies have this. We've certainly dealt with a lot of cases for clients where it surfaced one way or another, be it through an internal audit or because the employee who didn't get the job then files a complaint where it essentially says that they were passed over for the job. They weren't given the role because the hiring manager had a preference for their own people or people of a certain description. I think this is where the proposed law is actually spot on, where it talks about genuine occupational requirements for the role. So if you're looking at a person wanting to hire Daniel because he's white, I think the question then should be asked, what is the reason why you need a white person in this role? Is it because he is targeting a particular market where they only speak a certain language that he does? Or is it simply because majority of the team are of a certain demographic or a certain nationality, therefore they gel together? My view is the first one might be a, a more legitimate reason, but the second one certainly isn't, in, in my opinion. So Clarence, in your experience, how, for example, out of 10 cases that you handle, how many are defensible? With the benefit of having had anti-discrimination laws in most countries. And that tends to influence the approach and um, thinking of the companies in Singapore who themselves could be subsidiaries or group entities of global conglomerates. That has really helped to set the scene in Singapore to the point that today we are not seeing very many discrimination cases that are indefensible. So most of them do have genuine business needs underpinning their requirements. For a lot of employees, I think the question is, I think I have been discriminated against, but is it discrimination or is it not? Usually it's very subtle, right? You get excluded from lunches. After that, you get less and less responsibilities. And then after that, they pass you over for promotion. Was there unfair bias? You're not sure. And you start to question yourself. So what advice would you give employees to kind of understand whether he or she has been discriminated over? I'm going to say something a bit controversial, and that is generally, and I'm being a bit cynical here, so generally, as far as employees are concerned, they are always discriminated against a decision. That, that's just the reality of it. 
But if, if an employee is able to objectively assess their own performance or their own position within a team, and at one end, if, if it's the case that they are the absolute best performer, but they seem to be getting bypassed for every single good thing that, that comes their way, then I think that's potentially an issue. But if the question really is that they're actually not a very good employee, therefore they don't get all the nice things, then obviously that, that's a different analysis right there. This employee and everyone else who is of that same nationality seems to be sidelined in all the deals that come up or in, in all the team lunches that are organized. Then I would say that that's probably a telltale sign that something's not quite right within the team. Ashita, what do you think? Discrimination means different things to different people. And also in terms of just this example that you gave of going out for lunch. Now there's two parts to it. Am I going out for lunch as a team where my manager takes me out? or Am I going out for lunch just as a group, as friends, and we get along and we want to go out? They're two different things. It's up to the individuals to decide how they want to go, whom they want to go with, and, you know, choose the company that they want to keep. But if it's an official lunch, that's where, you know, the question of discrimination comes in. So question for you, Ashita. If I have the disease mentioned by Clarence, as in, if I don't get a job or the raise that I want, I immediately attribute it to my manager's bias. It's never a question of my competence. But it's that stupid, bad boss. What are the things that a company can do to mitigate these situations, especially for managers from becoming branded that mean monster? There's a competency aspect of it, and there's also the other elements of how do you engage with stakeholders, the soft skills. Of it. And there are some times where when you are at a lower level, you don't pretty much talk about technical skills. But as you move higher the organizational chain, you also speak of soft skills. That's where the competency-based interviews comes into the picture, like I said before, because one, it gives you a clear assessment of what is the role expectation for this particular job profile. Two, how are you going to be measured on each of them? And then the assessment is taken collectively. So I think that's where some of the biases can be at least reduced in terms of discrimination of jobs. It's a group of people that you know do the interview process. So if somebody does not get through an interview as well, I think the most important part is a feedback process. You have not got this because of X, Y, Z, and you need, you need to work towards it. And I think that's the important factor people miss out on. And maybe that's where we need to focus as well. But managers do have bias. Managers do have bias. I think a couple of things that we also do in addition to our technology that I shared with you is also constant education. If somebody is going to hire 100 people, I think it's very important to do that process before they go through the hiring process saying, we need to ensure consistency in the process and we need to re-educate them in terms of what are the different steps involved when we're doing such a decision. And that includes education for themselves, for their teams who are in the interview process, for hiring process, the talent acquisition team and everybody involved in the process because it's an ecosystem. The second thing is also we try to keep our benefits and policies, everything inclusive so there's no differentiation in terms of bias based on a particular gender, nationality or anything. And that, I think, also creates an equality in terms of, you know, when you're hiring people, we cannot say because you're a particular nationality, you get XYZ. And I think most of the companies do that. You have an inclusive benefits policy that helps fairness across the organization. And if the manager does not see, there's always visibility to the next level manager. So that kind of reduces the bias, as I would like to say. Shall we talk about the workplace fairness legislation? Now, underlying the preparations for this bill is the spirit of mediation. The faith that employers and workers want to resolve disputes with an apology, maybe restitution and a handshake. So for decades in Singapore's history, 
collaborative spirit between employers and workers has been cited as a critical factor in Singapore's economic success. Stakeholders want to avoid a litigious workplace. Clarence, my question to you, if you were an in-house legal counsel, how would you prepare the company for the passage of this bill, which could happen by the end of next year? Would saying sorry become an admission of liability? I don't suggest that we become defensive overnight and adopt that kind of thinking that a lot of US firms and US lawyers do, which is any concession is an admission of guilt, of liability. I don't think we want to head in that direction. I don't think that's the right direction for us to be heading in. I think to the extent an apology may be effective and could diffuse a situation, I think that should be offered. But my advice to legal counsel, to, to companies looking at this, I, I don't think we need to be too worried. There is nothing in this law which is ground shattering. And the reason I say this is because a lot of countries have had anti-discrimination laws for a much longer time. And a lot of companies, by virtue of, of that perpetuation of corporate cultures, of people who have worked in MNCs, then go off and join other smaller companies, that perpetuation of corporate culture means, by and large, there is a common consensus as to what the right kinds of behaviors in the workplace are. And I think that already sets certain expectation across the board. So we don't need to be worried that this, this proposed law, when it comes in, is going to suddenly change the legal landscape in Singapore. It's going to mark a fundamental change in, in the way we do business. I think it's by and large going to be business as usual. Among the recommendations was one to let the bill exempt small companies with fewer than 25 employees from the law for five years. They will still be subject to existing discriminatory guidelines, but because they are small, it was recommended that they be given more time to set up grievance handling processes, or even just to get educated about discrimination. Clarence, what do you think? I don't think it's the case that the SMEs and the mom and pop shops running out of the heartlands are so completely shut off from the rest of Singapore or the world for that matter that they just don't know that certain types of behaviours are not acceptable in the workplace. So I find this distinction to be artificial. I would prefer it if they didn't have this criteria in the law and expect right from the start everybody to have the same kind of behaviour going forward. I've got this example of a small bakery where its manager called its oldest worker, Ama, and make fun of her because she couldn't squat to slot boxes in the lower shelves. In his defence, he said he's from Malaysia and in the village where he comes from, the grandmothers don't work. He didn't know how to deal with one in the workplace. Maybe there's a case. But then again, we also have big-time managers in big companies making awful comments about young female colleagues. So you're right too. Ashita, do you have tips for a head of HR at a small company on preparing to meet this bill? You don't have to do big. I think simple thing is somebody to even reach out to the individual and speak. And I think most of these cases, people just want to hear you out. Most times than not, they need somebody to listen to them. The minimum that most organizations have is at least an HR practitioner or an HR business partner or any, anybody from the human resources team who can at least reach out to the individual or at least be the neutral person that can listen to both sides of the story. Now, in some companies, they can say, okay, it's too small. The, the finance leader can be the, the human resources leader possible. But you need to have somebody who can be that neutral person to kind of say, okay, I'll take this responsibility. 
The second one is, if you appoint somebody to do this job, you need to also empower the individual to take decisions or provide recommendations. And the third thing is, it doesn't take too much to create a policy or a framework or a guideline, even if it's the smallest company. So I think that's a fundamental of how do you define an organizational culture? So it's very important to at least articulate that right from the beginning to all the new joiners, even if it's a smaller company, because the smaller, the better, since you can integrate at an early stage. I think these are the three simple things at least that you could start off, even if you're a smaller company. If I could just add, and Akshita did do to this point earlier, a grievance handling process is not a particularly complicated thing to conceptualize and implement. Essentially, a lot of these things are fairly commonsensical. It's about putting in place a process that is fair, that is impartial, and communicating an outcome to the person, which actually is already the framework that exists in the Employment Act when it comes to, to dismissals of employees. So this isn't a groundbreaking development that smaller companies will struggle with. I don't think small companies will, will, will struggle to put this in place. But even if you did, just reach out to lawyers who would be more than happy to help you. Yeah, but it's so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> The decision to enshrine workplace anti-discrimination guidelines into law was first mentioned in 2021. Despite Singapore's aversion to litigious workplace culture, it happened because there was feedback that some foreign managers were giving local workers the pass over. These managers were diverting jobs and opportunities to their own countrymen or friends in their own networks. And it was happening especially in the tech and finance sectors. It was a form of nationality discrimination against Singaporeans in Singapore. Clarence, despite all that, you have spoken about the importance of having this piece of legislation being applied evenly, rather than entrenching Singapore's into jobs. Tell us more. I'm going to be a bit controversial by saying this. I think it's quite hypocritical to say, on the one hand, that there is no place for discrimination in Singapore and all employees must be treated fairly. And then, on the other hand, to say that we must continue giving preferential treatment to Singaporeans and we must do this by requiring all employers or those who employ beyond a certain number of employees to maintain a strong Singaporean core and consider Singaporeans first before any jobs are opened up to any non-Singaporeans. So I, I think inherently that is a contradiction and I think it is going to be interesting to see how the Singapore government grapples with this. My personal view is if you really want to build a better and fairer workplace, then you should be assessing employees based solely on merit and not because they are of a certain nationality or their ID cards are of a certain color. That's my view. Ashita? Thank you, Clarence, for covering the controversial part of it because then I don't have to repeat that. But what is important for us is also that it's not about a particular nationality, gender, race, right? It's about the right fit for the role. And that means if you're hiring a Singaporean because they are the best suited for it, I think that's the right thing to do. But if you're hiring somebody who's white male and it's the best suited for the job, I think it's also the right thing to do. Singapore is the regional hub for most of the companies. And given that you will have people based here in the regional roles, in the global roles. So saying that it'll only be one particular nationality in a leadership team may not be right. If I could give my feedback, my preference for the government is to make the workplace fairness legislation very clean. If it is called a fairness bill, it should be applied fairly even when a foreigner complains of discrimination against his nationality in Singapore. There are other mechanisms to strengthen the Singapore core at our workplaces, 
such as the upcoming Compass and other work pass legislation. But this piece of legislation, a wonderful one I think, should make Singapore a more competitive, fairer and a better workplace than it already is. I share Clarence's views very much. I'd like to thank Clarence and Ashita again for this session. I learned so much from them. I'm Chris Bull, and you're listening to Work Talk, a Straits Times podcast. If you'd like to read stories about the workplace fairness legislation and workplace bias, we have the links in our show notes. From me and the production team, thank you for listening and have a good work week. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.